Welcome to the Life Size City Urbanism Podcast. I'm Michael Koval Anderson. Part of my job is to keep track of what is going on in cities around the world on their quests to become more life sized. Not surprisingly, it's a bit easier to follow the progress in cities in your own region. Here in the Nordics, the four main capitals keep an eye on each other because of geographical proximity, but also because we share, by and large, the same Nordic model. Many initiatives are immediately relevant and transferable. I like living in Copenhagen. I've spent a lot of time in Oslo and love what they're doing up there. But Helsinki has always been my favorite other Nordic capital for many reasons, and more specifically, for their visionary policies. I spent a week there recently, in the late summer of 2021, and had the opportunity to meet many of the people responsible for the transformation of the city into being a global leader in sustainability, energy transition, housing policy. Yeah, the list goes on. Copenhagen has been a benchmark city for years, but it is clear to me that Helsinki is now the city to watch. Copenhagen has been talking about being CO2 neutral by 2025, but the entire spin revolves around switching to biomass instead of coal. Not a renewable, sustainable resource in any way, shape, or form. Helsinki has a similar goal, but they are doing things differently. I also had a specific goal on my trip to the city. To meet a deputy mayor that I've heard so much about. A politician with vision but also one with the force of will to make those visions happen. The deputy mayor's reputation precedes her, so I was pretty sure a new name was going to be added to my list. A list where the majority of the people are female politicians. Because it's becoming more and more clear every single day that female leadership gets things done. Be it on a municipal level or a national one. This is an all-round conversation with Deputy Mayor of Helsinki, Annie Sinemaki, about CO2 neutrality, a zero-carbon future, the folly of biomass, mobility, inspiration, leadership. I met her in the spectacular public library called Odi for a conversation about her work and the route Helsinki is taking to make their city better and to hopefully inspire the world. Annie, I've heard a lot about you, and uh, I have a, a list of politicians around the world that I've always said, oh, I'm gonna, I would vote for them if I lived there. It's a very short list. <laughs> but, but from what I've heard so far about the bike riding poet politician, uh, well, two of those things are interesting to me. The politics, maybe not, but uh, I've been looking forward to meeting you, so it's super cool. Nice that you're here. And this building, I've just been Instagramming like this. I have this erotic relationship with this her, him, they building. Uh, it's so amazing to sit here in this public space of this library. When did this open? Uh, it opened in December 2018. So um, it managed to have its really uh, life starting before the pandemic, which was great. Mm -hmm. And I think I have seldom seen when something new opens that people find it so quickly and start to love it so quickly and it, sort of asking each other that, what? did we actually do when we didn't have the library? Yeah. So in that sense, really people, Helsinki people have fallen in love with it. 
I mean, I don't even know what it is. I know it's a library, but it doesn't feel like a library. There's a cafe, but it doesn't feel like a cafe. It just feels like this amazing indoor public space. I was told I could film anywhere I wanted except in the kids' department, fair enough. Um, you know, and you can sit and do whatever you want. You can have meetings. Yeah. And I mean, just the, all the facilities. So it just really, it's just this, this really odd, amazingly odd place. You know, ar architecturally, it's just like, yeah, I can. I, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A la architects who won the competition when it was uh, organized, it was their breakthrough, really. So uh, I think they have also put their heart into the yeah. building and even to the building process. It is a library, but uh, from the beginning, it was meant to be like something broad, uh, like really a huge indoor public space. Mm -hmm. And that's why they are sewing machines or possibilities to do 3D printing or PlayStation if your parents do not uh, afford to have a perhaps PlayStation. Yeah. So as a child, you can come here and practice playing. So it was meant to be like a place where really many things uh, can be done. Third floor is for books, but the idea I think in the end, it's the same, that it's something that we share together, mm -hmm. like books in the library, we share them, so they are just other functions that we share as yeah. well. Being one of the politicians, I've heard so many good things about, like, uh, just generally, uh, what is your vision for Helsinki? Like, why, why did you get into municipal politics? You, you did it because you had a vision. So how do you sum up your general vision for where you want Helsinki to go? I have this feeling that few places have so good possibilities of showing in practice how to combine ambitious reaction targets to climate crisis with good life and equality. And I, I think that, of course, that is something that Helsinki citizens, uh, I think, deserve. But also I think that if we can show that this kind of city can be built and we can share it with other people, that how you do it, it's something that we can also be of inspiration to others and have a dialogue and of course learn from others as well. Mm -hmm. But to combine this kind of city life where equality is of value but life is nice and good and still you are strict with environment. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is a Nordic city. So we have many things, you know, in common when you yeah. come from Copenhagen or, or Stockholm or Oslo. Do you feel like the, the Nordic lifestyle, the Nordic model that we all try to, you know, improve upon? You guys are better in education, maybe we're better in something, you know what I mean? But we all seem to have this, this shared goals. Is that something that you think about in, uh, in, in when you try to describe your vision? Is it a very Nordic thing? Mm. I think it is. Uh, and I think that um, it is important for Helsinki to, um, to have this community of Nordic capitals, Nordic cities, and during the years there have been a lot of things that we have been learning. I actually have spent now two days listening uh, quite much to um, people from Copenhagen and Amsterdam talking about bicycle infra. Mm. Uh, and uh, also I think sometimes in Helsinki we follow what Copenhagen or Stockholm do regarding marketing, because I, I think sometimes we have not been as strong. And marketing as such, I think it's not an end <laughs> target. But of course, if you do something well, it's worth doing things so that people are interested in you. And that I think we have tried to learn from other Nordic capitals. But then I think, the, of course, the deeper question perhaps is that we have succeeded quite well in equality. And for cities that are from more far 
it seems perhaps to them that okay but you are nordic cities like what we have can we learn anything your model is so much more advanced or something and mm. i think um it's um important also to go deep down and see those places where perhaps uh like ethnic differences actually are handled better than in our cities because I think in all of our cities there are quite much hierarchies and unwritten rules that who enters what circles. So I, I think, for example, in that sense, we all have something to learn from places where diversity is. They have been thinking of it more. I, I think also, uh, you know, yeah, maybe all oh, the Nordic model. Yeah, we're never going to have that in our country. Like, as, and then so we don't need to have anything from the Nordics. You can still have good public space, <laughs> good bicycle infrastructure, environmental, uh, you know, systems, public, you know, district heating, all the things we have. I mean, there's things you can take, and and we can also absolutely take things from the rest of the world, as you say. But I mean, it's just like it seems like oh, the Nordics. Oh, people are just like we'll never be that, so we won't even try. You know, you know, I can't dress like that. Yeah, but you could buy the shoes. You know, like you, <laughs> I, I just find it yeah interesting. Um, so marketing, yeah, the algorithms seem to know that I was coming to Helsinki because all of a sudden my Instagram ads and it's all these beautiful photos and I'm in, I think you've taken the marketing to the next level. Here's more lifestyle and more like this is just a good place to live and to be and to visit. Nailed it in a way. <laughs> yeah. Looking at my phone as an indicator. I, I think that we were quite a long time lagging behind and past four or five years it has been something that uh, we have put effort uh, in and people who have, de have been doing it uh, are really talented and I think also the philosophy that we have had that it's quite much uh, we have invited uh, people, people who live here to tell what they actually love in the city and what are their favorite cafes or favorite vegetarian restaurants yeah. or swimming places and that has been a good thing because we didn't want to like market for tourists but actually also help citizens to explore the city better and i think that is a good philosophy because we have also followed places where in a way you can see that uh you have too much tourism that mm. it's overcrowded and then actually people who live there are like our, the rental prices go too high up because of airbnb or mm. that no one understands where there is a bicycle lane because everyone is here for the first day in yeah. the city. So we have also like we have wanted to attract more people to visit to Helsinki, but we have wanted to do it perhaps in a way that would be a bit slower and perhaps attract people who would come a bit longer time and really enjoy the city and not like, OK, we want everyone to stop for 24 hours and then leave. Yeah. I mean, the My Helsinki on, uh, on Instagram, like, they, they curate it. But as you said, the locals, it's not just the glossy marketing. It's like, you know, here's a little community event. Boom, and then they'll, they'll borrow that and put it on there. Yeah. I think that's really cool. I was talking to a friend of mine from the city, Oscari. Yeah. Um, and he was, we, you know, we had a, another podcast uh, interview, but he was saying, yeah, there's like a slogan, like kind of a goal in Helsinki to be the world's most functional city. And I, I laughed because, like, when you think about marketing, you know, it's like the city of lights, Paris, you know, all of this. And then it's, it, we got to tease each other in the Nordics. It sounds so Finnish, the world's most functional city as a goal, right? But I mean, in a way, I, I mean, but then as a Nordic, I'm going, yeah, that's totally, I get that. But it's still kind of funny as a, as a slogan, right? But does it function, do you think, Helsinki? <laughs> well, I think, um, well, it, it was certainly not my slogan. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so 
I've had uh, diff sometimes difficult relationship with it. But I think where it has been good is that it has challenged us to think actually that the questions that go quite into the everyday life and the comforts of everyday life of people who live here. So in a way, I think that it, as odd as it sounds, it has also put some ambition to everyone's action in the city. That if we want the city to function for people who live here, it actually means that we have to do our job really quite well. That if we have a construction site on the street that digs the street open, actually you have to think that someone who passes the construction site, he or she should find a way walking, cycling, by car, where actually to go and things, quite ordinary things like that. But still, I think now that we are in a period of um, just starting to form the new city strategy, which is always in Finland, it's done every council period. Mm -hmm. So I think that we will save the functionality as a method and as a goal that challenges us to do things with quality and from the citizens' perspective. But I think we will also choose perhaps something that has bit more romanticism in it or perhaps some hope also because the pandemic has been so heavy for cities that we now need something that gives us sort of perhaps a bit more hope and light. I remember I came here first in 1990. I was actually traveling and also weirdly living in the Soviet Union, long story, uh, <laughs> for a bottle of wine. But um, I, came in, I came to Helsinki for the first time. And back in 1990, it wasn't a big jump from Russia to Helsinki. Yep. It was really weird. Mm -hmm. And now you come here and it's like, it's light years from Russia. It feels like I'm coming to uh, like, you know, a, a Nordic brother or sister <laughs> city, right? Like yep. it's, it feels much closer to the Nordics just in, in the last 25 you know, or so years. I find that to be an interesting transformation. You've always uh, been influenced by both, I know, historically yeah. and culturally, but... Yes, and I would say that, of course, historically, the period of Soviet Union, that um, there were ties, and, well, I think politically we were perhaps sometimes too close. Mm. Uh, and, uh, well, I've written, actually, a, a poem uh, uh -huh. that, that mentions that uh, the early phases, it's, it's a text about early phases of the transformation that exactly says that before the whole place uh, was akin to something in Soviet Union. The transformation, it, it has, I think there has been different levels that have influenced it, certainly joining the European Union. Then it just urbanist policies. My own party, I think, has played, uh, has played a big role uh, in that as well. And I think in the end, when the transformation started to happen so that people themselves felt that they have more power or influence or more space to do things, like the restaurant day that started that, okay, you won't obey all the rules of sanitation of a permanent restaurant, that people just open the, one particular day, they open their own smallish one-day restaurants and things like that. I think that when you get that rolling, that people feel that the city is for them really, then there's no end of the transformation yeah. <laughs> in a way. You know better than me, but I mean, it's, it seems like, you know, historically for a long time, you're kind of going, okay, yeah, though there's Russia, 
oh, and there's the Nordics and there's Europe, but you know, and then you finally decide where we're going to look, you know, where we're going to focus, and it's sort of maybe you focus more on the Nordics. I mean, architecturally, it's Russian, it's Finnish. It's always wonderful to walk through the streets, but it's, I don't know. It's like you just kind of went, okay, which team are we going with here? You know, <laughs> yeah, and yeah. Put on the put on the yeah. football shirt, right? Yeah. And I think it was certainly, a, in a way, a, a political choice that was made, and there I symboli- symbolically, I think, although it was very practical, of course, uh, that the decision to uh, join the European Union was the choice to say that, okay, this is the direction where we look at now. And mm. I think it was a wise decision, yeah. certainly. <laughs> so more specifically, I come from a city that's been, you know, banging the drums for years about being the world's first carbon neutral capital <laughs> marketing from the city of Copenhagen. I've been very critical of it. Um, oh, cars are going to increase, but we'll build a wind farm off the coast. We'll just compensate for that. Like there's no uh, political vision for, for actually removing the cars in Copenhagen, you know, another thing. So you guys have a similar uh, vision that you're talking about becoming carbon neutral by 2035, right? Yeah. Yeah. So can you, can you please tell me it's better than ours in Copenhagen? <laughs> I mean, how, can you describe what are the goals? Carbon neutrality for us means means inside the Helsinki emissions will have to decrease by 80% from the 1990 level. So for compensation, that leaves 20%. And I believe in Copenhagen, the compensation part, at at least at some point, has been bigger. Mm -hmm. Now that we're discussing the new strategy, I can say that my goals for the new strategy would be that we would make the carbon neutrality, so the minus 80% uh, emission reductions, that we would make it earlier, so that would be 2030. Mm -hmm. And then also, I think what would be really important for actually every city to have the zero emissions goal because it's technically possible that you don't have to compensate but that you really go for the zero emissions and um, I think that 2040 would be an appropriate year for us it would mean uh, mainly two things I think that we would get rid of all of the natural gas after uh, we still have some coal, but after that, that it's not only the coal that uh, needs to be phased out, but natural gas as well, and then it's transport. By the 2040, well, hopefully, uh, sometimes transformations are uh, faster, uh, there would be no emissions from the transport anymore. And then uh, third thing, um, of course, it, it touches on uh, building things and uh, concrete, so there's, there's something. I would say as a recommendation, at least for every city, to have the zero emission goal that would take care of that, that you cannot uh, like buy the compensation somewhere else. I mean, carbon neutrality sounds like spin when you hear it, you know, it's just like, what's, what does it mean to be neutral? You know, like exactly <laughs> like building a wind farm to compensate for the, oh, the inevitable rise of the automobile, and this is literally in the report. but. One thing I've been very critical about in, in the Copenhagen uh, spin is, oh, renewable energy, you know, phasing out coal, yes, and yes, we're a good wind country, as we know, but then you read it's all biomass. You know, there's a lot of spin from that industry about, oh, it's renewable, trees just grow again, so we'll just keep cutting them down. And we're already seeing like a lot of chaos, but I, I was looking, you know, researching a bit about uh, Helsinki, and it seems like you are not putting all of your eggs in the biomass basket like Copenhagen seems to be doing. Please tell me it's better here. <laughs> um, I think you are exactly right. I think in a way we have now an advantage that comes out of uh, us being somewhat lousy before <laughs> because yeah. we procrastinated with the coal question. And while we procrastinated, we understood it better. And of course the whole discussion and even scientific evidence understood it better that biomass has 
a lot of problems and actually it can be a source of fairly big amount of emissions. So now we sort of that we found the window to put the target so that when we, we will um, phase out coal latest by 2029, probably earlier, but we have formulated it so that uh, we will not replace it mainly by biomass. Mm -hmm. Actually, uh, no new investment on biomass will be done. So we have to, uh, have to find the ways, uh, especially to take care of the heating without burning anything. Mm -hmm. I think that um, Copenhagen and Stockholm have been ahead of us in reducing the emissions, but since they did it before, there was not perhaps full understanding of the all the emissions that are um, tied to forestry and to heavy land use that is part of the such forestry that also then feeds the bio, burning biomass for heating. But I think that we organized, our former mayor was active, I think it was really a good project that we organized a international challenge, uh, energy challenge, mm -hmm. where the aim was exactly to solve the heating question without burning anything. Right. And I think we have, we didn't really find a sort of um, type of, uh, this is a pharmacy and this is exactly the right medicine for you, but we found, we got really interesting proposals and we are now working on them. And that is certainly something that we will be really keen to spread when we get a bit further, that how actually you solve this question. Because I'm positive that, it, like the German discussion, that, uh, okay, then it's um, natural gas. No, you cannot have, by 2040, you cannot have uh, natural gas. And I think biomass, it will happen that actually there will be times when we are phasing out biomass as well. Yeah, I mean, but then you think, why Why do we even start? If we already kind of <laughs> know a lot, I mean, there's like an, an Estonian uh, forestry magnate. There's like a guy buying up forests and chopping them down mm -hmm. because there's a, there's a market all of a sudden. So he just saw that opportunity. Most A lot of the wood chip biomass in Copenhagen comes from like Canada and America and Russia, where we don't even know what they're doing, you know, yeah. and then, but it shipping it all the way from Canada and Russia when, you know, we have the sun, we have wind, <laughs> we have other other solutions uh, that we can scale up or think differently about, right? So, but yeah, I, I think in sort of an, in nutshell, um, it's good to be quite critical towards biomass as a big, a big, big scale solution hitting mm -hmm. cities. Yeah. Now you were in national politics. Yeah. And now you're in municipal politics. Uh, what do you prefer? Well, I would say, yeah, municipal politics. But of course, it's a journey that you don't know. Many people like starting the municipal politics and they want to jump to the national level. But I did it another way around. Mm. And I, I was a member of parliament for almost 16 years. So I basically spent my early adulthood mm. there. So I think 16 years of anything, it's a long, it's a long time. Yeah. So for me, uh, it was really good time perhaps to, to change the per perspective. And um, since in national politics, you always have the government and opposition, and there has been the rise of sort of um, extreme right wing or populist right wing politics. And sometimes, of course, I'm looking a bit from the outside that it seems that it's so hard to find any solution to anything. That um, quite often the discussions of reforms and changes are somewhat endless in the national politics. What I enjoy in the city level is that actually we get things done. <laughs> of 
course, it's because of the voters. Many people have chosen to live to Helsinki. So perhaps, although parties have big differences, but it's still that it feels that we share the same city and we share mostly the same reality. Mm. So uh, at least for now, I prefer the city level. Yeah. I, I enjoy the thing that you actually, because it's also more concrete that legislation, how it affects, it's a bit like a slower process. But here, if we decide upon a tram line and then you see it being built and then you feel it yourself that how it pr improves the public transport that it's um, uh, that is enjoyable mm -hmm. i mean for me like people have always said oh you should go into municipal politics michael like i'm going that way i can't i can't do meetings and and, and municipal <laughs> yeah, yeah. coffee is always the worst right um but yeah but i mean you know i i like the democracy i live in but uh you know i literally don't know who my mp is and i'm very politically engaged i literally don't know who it is um i think it's from one of the parties i voted for fine but municipal politics you know where i live in copenhagen in fredericksburg you know i can see like the politician on the street you know yeah. hey yeah, i gotta leave i gotta talk to you or the local newspapers are always you know that's where the citizens are actually vocal where we feel like we have an influence and yeah, you share a street with your neighbors and you know, for me it's always been, uh, it's so much more interesting municipal politics because it affects my daily life where yeah. I don't, policies in the national government affect my life in some way. I don't really think about it, but like what the mayor just did on my street, okay, I have an opinion, you know what I mean? It's yeah. uh, much more, uh, much more, you know, more contact between uh, the politicians yeah. and the yeah. people, yeah. And in Finland, municipalities actually have quite a lot of responsibilities. So it's, it is really quite broad and mm. it is quite concrete. And also I think that, and there's a lot of inter interaction, more on practical matters than ideological in mm. a sense. And of course, since um, I did national politics and sometimes the climate policies were so hard to achieve because there's so much, although everyone sort of says that it's important, but every measure you actually want to take, it's quite hard. So for me, it's been a joy to see that actually on a city level, you can have ambitious goals and sort of execute them. And um, in Finland, for example, now the national government has the target of being Finland being carbon neutral by 2035. But I think they also dared to have it because so many municipalities had ambitious emission reduction goals. So in a way, it put pressure also to the national government. Now, I've spoken with a couple of guys about cycling in Helsinki. I've also, because of what I have been doing for 15 <laughs> years, and that's also kind of maybe too much where it's time to do other stuff, but following what Helsinki's doing. Um, and uh, looking at the infrastructure and whatnot. Um, so one thing that I kind of wonder about with your visions and the goals of Helsinki is why do you still have e-scooters? <laughs> when you look at Copenhagen, they had policy from January, they're gone. There's a few, I see four a day and they're privately owned, right? We can, yeah. they, Paris, I've been just working in Paris, talking to the vice mayor of Paris and He's going, yeah, we've really tried to, you know, legislate them to make them more difficult to use where you have to put them into a parking station, kind of kill the concept without yeah, without yeah. just banning them. Mm -hmm. But here you come out of the train station and you're tripping over them and people are like, you know, zigzagging down the cobblestones. I mean, uh, how does it? I don't get it. <laughs> as, a, as a green politician, a person with a vision of a more bicycle friendly city, a, a cyclist, um, how, how come you have so many? Like why? Well, what's you got to explain it. Well, I think we're in the middle of the discussions at the moment. Um, in Finland, uh, there's no such thing as city legislation in these matters. Mm -hmm. So um, basically the national legislation is really liberal towards them. So it's a bit a question that is there actually anything that the city can <laughs> rule or outrule. 
the current Minister of Transport, who was not responsible for the Liberal legislation, uh, has also now been active and we have been having talks with the companies and with the city and with the ministry, uh, perhaps more like a voluntary regulation. And the things that are now under discussion mainly is uh, whether they should stop giving them to use by night time mm -hmm. because the one thing is that people drive them drunk and get injuries that can be really harmful for mm -hmm. a person's life and also it's quite a big healthcare burden that uh, that people really hurt themselves mm -hmm. and the second thing uh, that is actively under discussion would be uh, to lower down the places where you can actually park them that you would not be allowed to park them as as you are now. So those are the things that are now under discussion, how to restrict the use of them. Yeah, that's what happened in Copenhagen. They, they, they legislated that uh, you, you weren't allowed to use them while you were drunk. So you had to you know, blow. Like, honestly, yeah. Weirdly, in Denmark, you can ride a bike. There's no uh, restriction to that with alcohol. But like they, they put it onto that. So the police started going after them in that yeah. period. And that also is like word of mouth. Oh, God, if you ride it at night, the police will give you a ticket. You know, <laughs> um, And then they also said you can Oh, you, they'll, they'll still be around, but you have to rent them from a shop, like a kiosk or a bike shop. The bike shops don't want them. <laughs> they want yeah, yeah. Um, and then you have to deliver it back, A to A. That completely kills the concept of uh, finding one on the street. Uh, yeah, because the, yeah. So the they, idea they is legislated that, in a way, it, and it just, they just kind of yeah. faded away. It's so yeah. nice to be in Copenhagen now. <laughs> <laughs> and, and here also the police has been sort of one thing that people uh, really hate is that people use sidewalks with the e-scooters because in the city center we have mostly cobblestone mm. uh, on the uh, car lanes mm. so and it's really uncomfortable to ride them so that's why people uh, jump to the sidewalk yeah. to use them and now the police has also tried to be active uh, i think um, in a way in the finnish legislation it's that you cannot be so drunk that you endanger others yeah. so police can also although there's not as strict um, rule for the promils mm -hmm. but i think police can still stop you and yeah. say that you are not allowed to drive because you are a danger to others or to yourself that's the weird <laughs> law in denmark for bikes is you have to be able to operate a bicycle in a satisfactory manner but that's like a judgment call from that cop. Who, you know, they <laughs> yeah, yeah. Really? What, what is satisfactory? Well, some, sometimes <laughs> it's clear, but there yeah, can yeah. be perhaps <laughs> situations where, that are borderlining. On my Insta today, I, I posted these maps that Marek found in the archives from 1934, where there was a bicycle count, like in red pen. And there are many, many streets with 10,000 cyclists a day in 1934 in, this, in what was a poor working class, you know, harbor city. Um, and then there's another map where all your infrastructure was. This really great network of Copenhagen-style, unidirectional, where you, you copy-pasted that, you know, from Denmark, I'm sure. And it looks better than the, the network. <laughs> uh, maybe the network today is, is getting there now. But you're a cyclist, right? So you, I see the, the unidirectional in Helsinki, which is best practice. Um, some of it's older, I know. But, uh, and then you have on the street here behind uh, Udi, uh, the library, there's like a bidirectional on one side of the street. It's like... It's like Helsinki can't figure out, are we going to do the one design or both? Because you can't mix them. It's like, yeah. it's like oil and water. Um, right? Yeah, the unidirectional is the, the goal where we are going. But um, Is it like a political goal? Yeah, like, yeah. Okay. And, then, and also the national legislation that before it didn't back it so much, but now it actually backs. But I, I think the situation it seems we somewhat have the bi-directional and the unidirectional is somewhat new for people it's not in their sort of backbone so i 
I think that we are we have to push, build and also push the rules and change the culture for people to understand the unidirectional. And of course, it means also that you really build the infra according to that. But yeah. it's the, the direction where we are going. Okay, good. Because I mean, you know, we're, we're design countries, right? Finland <laughs> yeah. and Denmark and Sweden and Norway. I mean, it's like there's design for this. It's from 1915 <laughs> in Copenhagen. That's when we first separated the bikes physically from motorized traffic and horses back then and pedestrians we you know yeah. we did that design and it just sort of you copied it here the english started building it all over all over the world um, and we kind of tested it for a while, 125, <laughs> yeah. you know, 120 years. So yeah, I just that just kind of bugs me that you're you got yeah, that, that mix. Yeah, some, yeah. You're a good design nation. So I'm glad to hear that there's a, a political vision. Yeah. What cities do you, uh, you know, as a politician, do you look to for inspiration regarding their politics, regarding uh, you know their their citizen engagement, whatever? I mean, there, there's got to be everybody has cities that go, oh, they're doing some really cool stuff over there. Like, and people look at us and say the same. But what do you look for? I think many different directions. One thing that that has been really surprising, and I think that is something that um, we could learn things because we are fairly slow. It has its good sides as well in a way to to do things thoroughly but um, the speed with which Paris has transformed regarding traffic mm -hmm. that it just feels that oh my god that uh, if we could sometimes be a bit faster and have changes done in uh, such a speed that is that is something that I really look up then I think that um, I look to U.S. not in the sense that their cities would be, they have tremendous problems in their city planning, general planning, the whole role of the car, but perhaps in a way the sort of strength and then uh, engagement that I think Americans somehow they understand really well how to invite people to discuss, but at the same time have, have will to enforce uh, things. And of course, one person that I have admired really, really a lot uh, has been Janet Sadik Khan, who used to be the transport commissioner for Michael Bloomberg. And although, well, it's a different party than mine, and <laughs> probably not the party that I would vote in the United States, but th that administration and how. Um, she has written about cha how changes were done has been, uh, for me personally, a, a big uh, inspiration and consolation also <laughs> during some difficult times yeah. to read that others have gone through that as well. So uh, then I have a personal thing um, which is a bit different that my husband is uh, half Italian, half Finnish, mm. and he grew up in Rome. And Rome, um, it's certainly they actually are lagging horribly behind many things but still it, it's a place where I go because uh, his mother lives there and I I still look at the thing that they have way too many cars and their organization of the space for cars is horrible but there are still some things how to actually live the urban life mm. that even if you have a sort of smallest place for something they actually gather and uh, that, and sometimes I just compare that. Okay, these this is how you 
get if you have too many cars. It's sort of a <laughs> opposition type of uh, learning process. But uh, I still, of course, since I go there, I try to one way or another learn from Rome and some other Italian places as well. Urban life, despite the the <laughs> raging uh, of the machines, but. Yeah, for me, I, one of the episodes of the Life Size City was in Milan, and um, I didn't know anything about Milan. I had I'd been there yeah. two days my entire life, and we went there and filmed an entire episode. But the citizen engagement, or rather, you guys could just do stuff. Okay, you want to do like a breakfast with your neighbors in that, that neighborhood on the square, and you don't have a permit? Fine, just do it. And then the, Milan kind of watches and says, actually, that's pretty cool. Maybe we can, you know... Like, oh yeah, legitimize it and make it something in all the neighbor. You know, they just sort of let people do whatever they want in a way. Yeah. Um, they allow for it and then they sit and watch. Like, they kind of respect <laughs> the fact that the citizens probably have better ideas. But then they, they go in and say, cool, thank you for that. Let's do that. Let's make it a policy. Yeah. Um, that's kind of like, you know, it, despite the car, the car culture in Italy and whatnot. They, yeah. they and, and Milan also, I think that they... Uh, of course, the pandemic has been really tragical for them since they've been completely in the middle of the worst uh, region uh, mm. in Italy. But they also acted really fast regarding the uh, space distribution during the pandemic. So yeah. um, uh, I actually visited Milan like summer um, 19. And now I've been been following it and I know the person who is deputy mayor for um, urban planning, yeah. Pierre Francesco Maran, yeah. and followed uh, their action through that. And also Mayor Sala uh, followed. Uh, and so they have really like introduced cycling lanes, new terraces. So they also did absolutely everything that you could uh, to make in, to improve people's life in the difficult situation and of course now it seems that many of the solutions where they took more space for bikes for example that they will make make it permanent so uh, that is also really I, I think Milan is an interesting example and of course they have also been investing investing in public transport that they have extended their metro network yeah. uh, for example which I think that is um, respectable thing and they have even those projects have not been like completely like 10 years or something but they have been quite efficient with it in italy of course you get everything and you get different things if you compare south or yeah, of north. <laughs> yeah. but i like milan last year like the first movers paris berlin and milan uh, milan regarding you know temporary bike lanes milan was going hey yeah, it, these aren't temporary, by the way. This is these are going to be permanent. Yeah. This is our window of opportunity. So Paris can call them temporary. Berlin, Toronto, whatever. Now this is going to be, you know, part yeah. of our master plan. Now Paris is also making them permanent in many places. I mean, you can't even keep track of Paris. Like, I've been there three times this spring working <laughs> and meeting the vice mayor uh, David Belliard and just you know just hearing him. Yeah, and then you you leave and the week later it's like yeah, no cars in this city center. Like that's the new one. I think it's from September or something. Uh, yeah, yeah. Just like massive. Like, nobody else is doing that kind of stuff on that scale and that fast, as you it, said. It's amazing. And, yeah. and still, like, I remember, I think I first went to Paris, like, 1994. And it was like a dream for me that Paris, it's really something. And, of course, it was dreamlike and really beautiful. But it was really a city for cars in, in many ways. And, like, Rue de Rivoli or something that uh, it's... And, of course, it's much shorter time than from 94 to now, but it's mm -hmm. a really short period, so it's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, it's crazy. And then pedestrian streets around the canals. They, this is uh, one of uh, Anne Hidalgo's uh, election promises. And yeah. they actually did it this, uh, like, in September, I think, last year. So all the canals, it's just like just walking streets, you know. 
Like, there's no car. Or I think cars can go through if you live there. But, like, I, I sat there drinking wine for a few hours uh, <laughs> earlier this spring. And, yeah, there was, like, three cars. And people are going, car. Like, you know, it was, it was yeah, packed, yeah. packed with people. And everybody's going, wow, a car. So, yeah, that's pretty cool. Now, you're very, you're, you're very Finnish in Finland, interestingly <laughs> enough. Um, do you do, um, you know, and modest, you know, and humble, you know, as, a, as Finns and, you know, taking things slow and, you know, collective decision making and not so quick. But do you, do you feel a, a leadership role? You personally, but also you as Helsinki for other cities. You're saying, yeah, people can learn from us. But I mean, do you feel like a kind of a, not a bad weight on your shoulders, but like kind of like we got some visionary policies that really every city should have. Do you feel like you should step into some bigger shoes and, mm. and be the, the proud city that says, come to us and learn like Copenhagen is all bravado, a lot of it, right? Oh yeah, we're Copenhagen, we're cool, come and learn. <laughs> and you guys are diff- very different cultures. So I don't know if you feel like there's a, you know, that you, you need to step into a global leadership role as a, as a capital city. Yeah, I think so. And I think the only possibility probably uh, is to do a bit in a Finnish way because you cannot completely change such mentality issues. But yeah, I think that for many reasons, I think think we should. First of all, for our own benefit, because when you are in that role, in a way you get more engagement and you actually all the time learn. Then I feel personally that it's a good way to challenge yourself that when you are... And, well, sometimes it's also a good way to uh, uplift your spirits and see what you have achieved, two things at the same time. Mm-hmm. That sometimes when you really think that how I explain what we have done to others, you can have this feeling that, ah, actually quite great things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah, that, hey, we're doing well. Yeah. Uh, because in your everyday uh, duties, you are just thinking of, okay, we should improve that. Ah, there we didn't uh, achieve the target. But of course, also that when you think in the engagement of others, you also see these things that, oh my God, how slow we are. Mm. That in a way, it also boosts you up. And certain things, I think that the strengths where I would like to see us to inspire others or have discussions how to do it, I think equal housing policies, that is something we have been good at. We have been able to reduce the homelessness, the prices on housing, although they have um, gone up, not as fast as in Stockholm or as in Copenhagen. We are really strict when building new areas, that it's regulated rental, more expensive flats that you buy, co-ownership. So it's really that we do, we're really careful to do the social mix and not just new places for those who can afford it. Mm-hmm. Then I would say that education, there are strengths and also there the equality. I think Copenhagen is uh, doing many things bit the similar way, mm-hmm. but there are really many places where the segregation of the schools is really a big thing. And certainly I think that uh, how to resolve uh, questions of city heating without burning uh, things, that is something. So there are themes where I think we're strong and I don't believe that we could go around the world saying these specific themes, but it's more, in the end, it's more like Helsinki is place worth looking at as a whole, uh, as something tempting. And then those who are interested in more specific goals would uh, get into the dialogue with us. You can go shopping and you can maybe take some of the things that you <laughs> yeah. need and maybe it'll work where you're from. And, and yeah. But generally, I think uh, for me, Copenhagen, Stockholm, we're never going to be free. <laughs> you know, it's always <laughs> like fighting to be the, 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 the queen of Scandinavia, right? But I mean, I think Helsinki is, I mean, for years, it's been uh, so interesting to watch and um, you know, I think it, you should be the leader and I think you are well on the way to doing it. 
So <laughs> that's great to hear. <laughs> yeah. But Annie, thank you for your time. I think we're going to meet again well in this trip. But uh, but for now, thanks very much for your time. Thank you. Cool. You've been listening to The Life-Sized City, my podcast about urbanism and urban change. As ever, this episode was produced thanks to red wine and coffee. The music was composed by Phil Creamer. Check out his website at www.hereonout.ca. I'm Michael Koval-Anderson. Thanks for listening.